Well, I agree with everything that Bernard said. And I'm somebody who voted for Jim Callaghan only on the third ballot in 1976. And I was wrong. He proved in pri as prime minister, in my view, that the apprenticeship of serving as Home Secretary, Foreign Secretary, Chancellor of the Exchequer was an absolutely invaluable one to be hold this great office of state. The first year, Jim was predominantly concerned with the economic crisis that was gathering and then the IMF crisis. And there wasn't much room for foreign policy. It was also the election year for presidents, 76, which is never a good time to establish a big relationship in the United States. He was, of course, an Atlanticist. I accompanied him three weeks after I'd been appointed on the 10th of March to Washington. And he revealed his philosophy very well in a speech in the White House. Grapple them to thy heart with hoops of steel. Quoting Shakespeare, that was how he felt the American-British relationship should be. Very few people knew Jimmy Carter at that time, and he judged it his prime role, he himself, to get close to Jimmy Carter, and he did it with great skill. At that meeting, we agreed that there would be an Anglo-American initiative Jim wanted to slightly push us into the driving seat. I said, on this occasion, there are going to be two drivers, Cyrus Vance and myself, because we, didn't, we hadn't quite lost our parliamentary majority, but we faced a very hostile House of Commons on the issues of race and particularly on the issue of Rhodesia, as it then was. And that was the start of a very interesting period of cooperation in all areas of policy, but particularly over Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, over Namibia, and particularly over South Africa, and the need to shift the British position to have none of these qualified roles for voting, but one person, one vote, no equivocation over apartheid, and to persuade British industry to look very carefully at their investments in South Africa and be ready to move across the, the uh, very difficult threshold um, towards economic sanctions. All this time on Africa, I was hugely helped by the fact that he had close personal relations, as has already been said by Lord Morgan. The only one you left out was Suretsi Kama. All of those people, uh, Kanda, Nairi, were friends over many, many years. Let me give you a small story. Uh, Jim ringed me up and said, David, I want to apologize. I said, well, what do you apologize for? He said, I've just had Kenneth Kanda on the phone, and he'd had a raid into a Lusaka and was threatening to go and get arms supplies from Russia and was in a hell of a state and ringing him up. And Jim pacified him and said, well, look, we better meet. Let's meet next weekend. And why don't we meet halfway? And Jim typically knew halfway was probably Kano, anyhow, he fixed the meeting in northern Nigeria. And he was ringing up to apologize to me for fixing the meeting without having consulted me first. Well, if you think of a few prime ministers since then, I don't think that conversation could ever have taken place. But it, it was classic, too. He was ready to stand up to America. When Brzezinski took uh, various stances on Africa, the person who was counseling 
a more cautious approach was Jim, and he persuaded Jimmy Carter. And we had taken a stance on the uh, Siad Barre's invasion of the Ogaden into um, Ethiopia, and we were not prepared to countenance it, even though it was in East-West politics quite sensible to do so. And Jim held with Cy Vance and myself against the Brzezinski line that we would not accept this because the time would come, and the time did come, when Ethiopia was strong enough to come back and be on the borders of Somalia and very needed a lot of persuading not to cross. Now, this was a tremendous strength. The other area of foreign policy which is very important, of course, was Europe. Jim had understood that in the whole of the renegotiation. And we should be under no illusion. It was Jim and Harold's uh, shift and persuasion of the Labour Party that was the absolutely crucial factor in the referendum. But we then had to bring a party which had been uh, deeply divided on this referendum together to face up to the issues of Europe. And the fundamental issue, which we discussed in an all-day cabinet meeting in July of 77, was that we would champion enlargement, and we would not go down the French line of only accepting Greek application. But Greece had to be accompanied by Portugal, who nobody particularly wanted involved, except Jim had got this relationship as foreign minister when he'd been extremely influential in the uh, communist phase of Portugal's uh, transition and a, a very close friendship with their then coming prime minister and also Spain. And at the end of the day, a deal was done between Helmut Schmidt, Giscard d'Estaing, and Jim Callaghan that the French would be allowed Greek to come, Greece to come in first, but a binding commitment that that was to be followed by uh, Spain and Portugal. And that enlargement was for political purposes and was an example of how he worked. The other way to think about how he worked actually was we'd come back from, he was a member of the, automatically as prime ministers of the Athenaeum, and he thrust a note across the cabinet to me and said, come and have lunch. We went there for lunch, walking back through St. James's Park, and he said to me, uh, David, what's, what's Dennis up to on this uh, exchange rate mechanism that was being discussed? And he'd made two speeches, one in Canada and one in Washington, which was slightly different. And so I said, what do you think we should do? So I said, Jim, I've had a very good suggestion by a very bright person, which of course he knew, Michael Butler, that what we should do is effectively buy our echoes and join in this monetarist experiment, but not join the exchange rate mechanism, which was the very thing that it was all about. It was exactly that same parallel which John Major took at the Maastricht Treaty sign up to the monetary union, but don't join the actual Eurozone. And that was a historic choice, and if Jim had not taken it, the thing about Jim is he said, I tell you what, David, let Michael Butler from the Foreign Office go and persuade the Treasury, and then Jim will come to you, and Dennis will come to you and me and say, this is not a bad idea, and then we'll all get it through Cabinet. We got it through Cabinet with, I think, only Peter Shaw quite understanding exactly what was happening. And that was, again, a very clever aspect of ways Jim saw politics. He wanted the Home Secretary, he wanted the Foreign Secretary, he wanted the Chancellor to take responsibility. But he had one motive, never disagree in Cabinet unless you've had 
a previous discussion privately and you fail to disagree. And then, of course, you have your open disagreements. And that those four ministers he believed should be able to work together in harmony and try at all stages to work together. Again, a very different philosophy from that we've seen in all prime ministers in the past, except for, I think, John Major. And now, when it comes to other aspects of policy, well, I think what Jim made a particular contribution. A letter came through from the private secretary to the private secretary. What does the foreign secretary think about inviting Begin to come and visit the country? Begin had just become prime minister of Israel. The man who was responsible for blowing up the Camp King David Hotel. And Jim then said to an aside, now we'll, to one of his officials, maybe it was to you, Bernard, now we'll discover who's in charge of the foreign office. Well, back came the reply from me that it would be a very good idea, but it was an extraordinary, ingenious decision because it came before uh, Sadat flew into Israel and the whole peace thing changed. And from that moment on, we had a, a privileged position because Begin the toughest and the most difficult thing had already established a close working relationship with the Prime Minister and, in part, myself. Another example, I think, of Jim's insight was when I went to uh, the Defence and Overseas Policy Committee, very worried about what was happening in the Falklands, and I wanted a nuclear submarine to go underneath the sea and be there, not as a deterrent, but as a, an insurance policy, unless our negotiations went wrong. Jim was never happier than having the Defence uh, Committee chairing the Defence Committee. He much preferred it if the uh, Chiefs of Staff actually came in uniform. And then he would have had his maps out on the table and the whole question of this deployment, when the, sadly the Falklands was invaded and we all began to discover things, the Chief of the Naval Staff, rather inappropriately, said, well, of course, this initiative was never serious and there had never been any intention to use force. And I had to remind him in 83 rather publicly that rules of engagement had been drawn up at a meeting actually at which that chief of defence staff, then chief of the naval staff, had actually been present. And Jim had insisted not only would they be drafted, but they'd come back to us to be cleared. And as I say, the old naval spirit in him was a very strong one. The other aspect of European foreign policy, which we had in this all-day cabinet in... Uh, July, was every single aspect of that policy he asked me to oversee myself. And he said, I don't want this to be a foreign office paper. So I asked Tom McNally to come and leaked in it. And that was a, a paper of about uh, 50 pages. And I think it's the only time that I think even now that the British cabinet has looked comprehensively at all aspects of European uh, identity and strategy. We dealt then with enlargement. We dealt then with some of the looming problems on finance. But we also dealt with this whole issue of confederation or federation. We dealt with the whole way in which the Labour Party should position itself. And we took uh, quite openly the French position, the Gaullist position, the fact that Mitterrand then in opposition had moved the uh, French socialist position broadly speaking, to also be a, a confederal position. And I do think now, when the, the party leaders are looking again at Europe, 
they might actually spend a little time reading the cabinet papers of July 1977 and the discussion of how British interests can best be reflected. And Jim always saw the European issue right from his famous, or some would say infamous, speech in Southampton, the non-mercy Boku speech, which I suspect, Peter, you had a hand in, like a number of other speeches. Uh, but nevertheless, Jim's understanding of the European issue was very close to the heartbeat of the British people. Labour left that, unfortunately, in the 80s, came back with great enthusiasm, but perhaps too much enthusiasm. The convert, the zealotry that sometimes comes with conversion. The policy for Europe, in my view, that the country should look at now is very similar to the policy which Jim Callaghan presided over. And he did so on the basis of friendship. He had real friendship with European leaders. Helmut Schmidt has been mentioned. It was an extraordinary and important friendship. But also he had good relations with the uh, Dutch, uh, with the Danes. And we tried to work. And in that paper that was written, I referred to the fact that with all the experience of the labor movement with collective bargaining, we ought to be the political grouping that could best deal with the constant negotiations, which are basically the essence of the then European community and now European Union. Just leave one last reminisce. It was discussing nuclear policy, four of us, Dennis Healy, Fred Murray, and myself and Jim Callaghan, on a rather auspicious occasion. I think it was the 12th of December, and in burst Michael Foote and the chief whip to announce that the Tribune Group had decided to vote against the sanctions against Ford Motor Company for their 17% uh, pay rise. I believe Labour Party lost the election that day. It was not the winter of discontent. We lost authority. We lost that vote in Parliament by... I think it was 285 votes to 283. And next day, we won a vote of confidence by 10. But the issue was, would you face the Tribune group down, make it a vote of confidence, and if you didn't win, we'd have to have an election, and we actually discussed uh, postponing the campaigning over the Christmas and the January period. So I put for you who are archivists and historians... I think you should go back and look very carefully at that. Be very careful that it all followed Guadeloupe, that it followed the trade union thing. It came much earlier, actually. It came in Parliament. And so often, it's in Parliament where the big changes stem out and flow out to the country. And we lost authority, and we lost uh, some measure of credibility. And it was the one area where Jim had greatest difficulty. It meant standing up to the trade unions. And... It was the one issue that racked him during all those very difficult months of January, February, and March. But throughout that period, he, was, he retained his dignity, he retained his strength, he, he retained the friendship and the comradeship of the cabinet. It was a cabinet of very diverse people. I mean, Tony Benn, in those days, views were very different from the majority, but there were also a, quite a strong representation of what we would sometimes call the far left. Everybody was given their moment in the sun. If they wanted to speak, they spoke, and they were listened to, and they would, John, Jim would acknowledge their 
contribution in summing it up. I think he was a significant prime minister, and I think history would have been very different had we not lost that election. I'm not one who does believe that we would have won it in September. Certainly, I wouldn't have won it in Plymouth Devonport in September 1978. But if we had managed to win it at some time on a better platform than we were forced to fight in 79, history would have been very different, and Jim Callaghan's position as Prime Minister would have been an even more illustrious one.